Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Grove, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, and your best friend. I'm super happy to be with you tonight, but I'm just barely with you tonight. You'll notice the show is late this week, and that's because I've been losing family members to COVID-19. I've been a little distracted with funerals and stuff like that, so wear your mask be social distance and all that stuff, and we can get on with it. But luckily, the Fish Nerds correspondents have come through and put together some content for your ear holes this week. And then next week, I'll be back with some normal me content <laughs> on top of whatever the, our, our uh, correspondents give you. So tonight on the podcast, today on the podcast, we've got Tim Beat and the Crappie Hippie here with a Lure Love sex- segment where they will tell you all about Fishing excise taxes and why they're the good tax. Then Doc Martin, our chief science correspondent, is back and she scored the interview of the millennia. She's got Leif Tapanella, a marine paleontologist in the Department of Geosciences at Idaho State University. They'll be talking all about the buzzsaw shark. Buzzsaw shark. Should be a great show. So let's just jump right into it before any further ado. I like to use the word ado. We're going to jump right into Lure Love with John King and the Crappie Hippie. Lure Love, I can't get enough. Got a space in my tackle box, just got to fill it up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lure Love. This is Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas. And sitting in tonight, my co-host and good buddy, Tim Beat, outdoor essayist and member of the Great Lakes Outdoor Writers Association. How's it going tonight, Tim? I am doing great, John. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I wanted to cover something that I've been kind of thinking about here lately, Tim. I've been thinking about what a bunch of great people fishers are. And how, you know, all the fees from our licenses and so on uh, go to support conservation efforts and and uh, fish habitat and, and, and fishing and so on. And, and uh, you know, that's why Clay encourages everybody when they travel to go ahead and buy that license. And, and uh, a lot of people buy licenses for their kids and stuff when they don't have to because they want to make a contribution. But, you know, something you've been making another contribution every time you go out and buy a lure. So when you practice some lure love, you're actually helping the the whole fishing scene. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the excise tax. But I have to tell you, John, before you told me about it, I didn't know there was an excise tax on fishing gear and lures. Yeah, there is. And, and of course, I became keenly aware of it uh, when I got into the business. It was always kind of in the background. Um, but yes, Everybody, every time you buy a fishing lure, every time you buy a rod, every time you buy some line, um, and we also get helped out by the hunting side with arrows and ammo and, and guns and so forth. But every time you buy a piece of fishing equipment, there is a 10% tax on that equipment that goes to support fisheries programs, conservation, clean water, this kind of stuff, all directed directly to fishing. And it's called um, 
an excise tax. Um, briefly, what an excise tax is, is a directed, narrow-focused, relational tax, um, for example, on gasoline. So the more gas you buy, the more you use the road. So you pay a tax on gasoline that kind of is related to the amount that you drive. So um, we have, thanks to the Dingle Johnson Act of 1950, it took the, uh, when the World War II started, they took all the tax off sporting goods and used it toward the war effort. Um, and then they decided to go ahead and keep that tax going um, and turned it into Dingle Johnson Act of 1950, turned it into this excise tax for fisheries and conservation. And uh, without getting too far into it, um, me as a producer, how we pay excise taxes, you can pay it on either on your supplies, your spinners, your swivels and stuff, and you can pay each manufacturer 10% of what you're getting from them. Uh, but once you hit a certain threshold, you file a, a form. It has a number. I think it's 1035, but don't, uh, don't. Josh Lopes would know. I don't know. Um, but uh, you file this form. My wife would know. She's the CFO. She's the one, she's the one that ought to be in here doing this. But then you, you, <laughs> it, it becomes a valuation tax and you pay 10% on uh, lure. So I sell, uh, for example, I sell a uh, crappie dealer at 425. So my excise tax on that's around, you know, 42.5 cents. Um, and of course, uh, some of that gets passed on, I, some of it or all of it gets passed on to you all customers. So whether, um, so you're supporting fishing by going out and buying lures now, as if Tim beat needed another reason to go buy lures, <laughs> here you go, lure love, man, get out there and buy some more lures. Cause every lure you buy, you tell your wife, I have to, I have to give baby. <laughs> John, you, you you buy one crappy dueler and the tax is about 40 cents. But if you catch a hundred fish with that, there's no more extra tax. So it's really a bargain, right? It's a total <laughs> bargain. It's a bargain at twice the price at twice the tax. But it, it is a tax that's widely supported uh, by sportsmen, sporting people, excuse me, fishers, anglers. Um, and that's so encouraging that we have... Uh, such a good spirit and, and, and one of these, you know, very few in this day and age, the current age, especially that where we've got this cross cutting thread that goes through all political philosophies at, at the very minimum of uh, Fisher supports the environment because he mean he, he or she knows there's, that means more places to fish and more fish in those places. Yeah. Uh, John, I'm not a big fan of paying taxes as most people aren't, but I like the fact that this is supporting the lakes and streams and rivers that I fish in, the stocking programs, and it's really having a big impact. And as you had told me before we started recording tonight, um, the numbers are significant in some states, the, the numbers of dollars that are coming in from the federal government to help support us. Yeah, it, it comes to quite a bit. I mean, you know, in New Hampshire, how they love taxes in New Hampshire, <laughs> uh, Kansas, Ohio, we're all, we're all about this, but yeah, um, New Hampshire is going to pick up uh, a little over seven mil um, Kansas for a population of 1.3 million people. Kansas is going to have 16 mil for a population of 2.9 million. And y'all in Ohio are going to get uh, almost 20 mil for a uh, population of almost 12 million. So I must have bought a lot of lures if we're going to get. 20 I was going to say <laughs> I, there is, there is. I see that seven hundred thousand on there, and I'm wondering how much of that, if not all of it, is because of Tim B. You know, his, his crowd. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it's a great reason to show some lure love. 
get out and buy some lures because, uh, Hey, you're helping out. And thank you to all fishers, anglers that get out and, and, uh, buy the lures and support the tax. And if you, um, haven't heard about it till tonight, don't let it anger you because the article I read on taxfoundation.org, it was entitled a good tax. And it's one of the best structured, most efficient and effective taxes. Uh, it's a example of government doing it right and the population that supports it is doing it right so hats off to all you lure lovers out there thank you well john you obviously know a lot about this excise tax because you own your own lure company now i like to read fishing tackle retailer magazine and I read it online. It's it. You talk about being a nerd. It's the business magazine of sports and marine fishing. And it's great if you want to see new product announcements for fishing lures and tackle, all kinds of things in there. Cause it's the magazine is read by all your bait and tackle shops and they have a, um, a free email newsletter called tackles top five comes out every week, breaking news of lures and things like that. And uh, so I would suggest that listeners go and check them out. Um, but I went through and I searched their 2020 archives of the magazine and I combined the information I found there with some non-fishing trivia to test your knowledge of both fishing, excise tax, and random statistics. So are you ready, John, for this quiz? Uh, ready as I'm ever going to be. <laughs> Now, I know that 75% of all statistics are made up on the spot. Well, you know, this podcast is mostly true. <laughs> mostly true. Mostly true. <laughs> and completely grounded in science. And okay, let's do it, bro. Yeah. And we'll have the Lure-Matic computer keep score for us as we go along. So question okay. one, John, I'm, all these questions, I'm going to give you two things and you tell me which one is greater, which number is larger. Okay. Question one, which is greater, the percentage of the excise tax on fishing lures and gear or the percentage of adults who sleep with a comfort object, such as a teddy bear? The comfort object. So as you said before, the excise tax is 10%. The number of adults who sleep with a comfort object, 33%. Uh-huh. I'm, so, I'm, one, I'm one of them. Yeah. Come on, Tim. You've got a huggy pillow. You know you do. No, I, I just sleep with my fishing creel. <laughs> <laughs> right, on, right on. So you're one for one. All right. Question two, which is greater, the number of years since the fishing tackle excise tax became law or the number of people who die each year from choking on ballpoint pens? Oh, people choking on pens. So the excise tax was signed into effect in 1950. 70 yeah. years ago, 70. on average, a hundred people choked to death on ballpoint pens. Good grief. <laughs> oh my gosh. So stay away from those ballpoint pens. And where are the viral videos? Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Choking but, on a pen, dude. <laughs> question three, which is greater? The average dollars raised through the fishing tackle excise tax, including the boat or gasoline tax between 2015 and 2019, or the lifetime gross revenue from the movie Forrest Gump. Boy, that movie worldwide, it's still being showed in Sri Lanka or somewhere, right? Surely. I mean, it's, God, that's a toughie, Tim. I'm going to go with Forrest Gump. Okay, so from 2015 to 2019, the average raise through the excise tax was $668 million. Not the gross sales, but that's the actual tax on it. 
668, and Forrest Gump had gross lifetime revenue of 678, $10 million more. Oh, God, that was tough. Yeah, that was, that was a tough one. Do you remember the uh, Bubba Gump shrimp in that movie? Oh, I've, I've, yeah, I've seen the, I've seen it man, manifold times. One of my favorite lines in that is when they're, they're talking about all the different ways you can eat the shrimp. You know, there's pineapple. Oh yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that scene. In fact, that's a, that's a great stick to just keep showing them doing different things. And he's just keeping on shrimp and potato <laughs> shrimp with corn and cob, you know, it's just on and on. Yeah. It's beautiful. Okay, question number four, which is greater, the percentage of excise tax revenue made up by the sale of fishing rods or the number of people who are killed by vending machines each year? Oh, um, the fishing rod excise tax. So fishing rods make up 3% of excise tax. That's what it was in 2019. But each year, an average of 10 people are killed by vending machines. Oh, well, you know, and that's interesting too, because they have a $10 cap on rod excise tax, and I don't know how they manage that. So if you're paying $300 for a rod, your percentage is a lot lower on that than a guy that's buying a $30 rod. Do they do that with any of the other items or just, just the rods? I know they don't do it for spinner blades and hooks. <laughs> stuff I'm doing. So, you know, not in the rod business. You know, I buy my stuff at garage sales. <laughs> All right. Question five, which is greater? The number of dollars that states have to put in to match $3 in grant funding from the sport fishing restoration program. So when they get the excise tax money, the states have to match it. Or the number of NHL goalies who have scored a goal. I'm going to go with goalies who have scored a goal. You are right. So the states only have to put in a dollar for every three dollars they get. So that, that is was going to be my guess. Great leverage. Twelve goalies have scored a goal in the NHL. That's fantastic. That's great trivia. But I, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, but I, that match three to one. That's that's pretty good money coming back to the states. That's awesome money coming back to the states. And of course, it makes those figures I just read even more juicy and 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 uh, encouraging and so on. All right, let's keep yep. going. What am I doing? What am I, I've only missed one so far. Right? Only one so far. Yeah. Question right. six: Which is greater, the year the Simpsons debuted on Fox, or the year that Angler purchases of tax-related items peaked? Uh, the year we peaked, we peaked. I so it was the, 2017 and the Simpsons have been on a lot longer than that. So the Simpsons debuted in 1990, but it was actually 1996 oh. when, when they, when they peaked at 8.6 billion and it's gone down since then. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Okay. Now, I don't know if you're a big Simpsons fan, but since uh, we're all fish nerds, I don't know if you remember episode 10 of The Simpsons, where Homer joined a fishing crew, and he, he set out to discover the yum-yum fish, which had, which had been overfished. So even The Simpsons is getting in on the Conservation Act. Oh, that's, that? that's great. It is. <laughs> and I, we could, let's not let The Simpsons aside go on too long, but they're some of my favorite episodes. I have not seen that episode. I used to watch it religiously, was there from season one till season whatever in the teens uh, but uh the other two favorite fishing related ones number two would be uh the three-eyed fish yeah that, yep. that, that bart catches uh which is just fabulous but my very favorite one is the one about where they go to the marriage counseling camp and homer hooks up old general 
and, and I love the guy. I, I love the, the the New England guy in the bait shop. Oh, you're going after old general, huh? You know, and, and it's just, it's great. And I love how Homer becomes a legend. Guy came close once, went by the name of Homer. Seven feet tall if he was an inch. Shock of red hair. Shown like fire. I, I love that one. Yeah, some great fishing stuff in the Simpsons. So question seven, which is greater? The percentage increase in fishing tackle sales from 2019 to 2020, according to excise tax dollars, or the number of verses in the Greek national anthem? I'm going to go with verses in the Greek national anthem. You are correct. So the, according to excise tax dollars, fishing tackle sales were up 30% from uh, 2019 to 2020. The Greek national anthem has 158 verses. <laughs> if, if you go onto YouTube, it's like 30 minutes long. And I am just glad they don't win many Olympic medals because those podium <laughs> ceremonies would go on all night. It, it just seems more laid back place where we have time to listen to a half hour <laughs> national anthem as opposed to, you know, someplace that's a little more high strung. So uh, hats off to Greece. All right. So the next questions come from the fishing tacking retailers coverage of the American Sport Fishing Association's 2020 State of the Industry Address. Which, which is much more interesting than any State of the Union Address I've ever heard because it has to do with fishing. So Heck yeah. Question eight, which is greater, the most children born to one woman or the number in millions of website visitors the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation's Take Me Fishing campaign saw in 2020? I'm going to say a number of millions that visited the website. So they, yeah. So there were 40 million visitors to the website. The greatest number of children born to one woman is 69. I was it, like, it, it, oh my God, that's way, it, I was like, I was thinking the number of the woman was like in the 60s, but then I'm like, no way, no way. So he, here's the story. It was in the 1700s. She had 27 confinement. So she gave birth to 16 pairs of twins, seven triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Bless her heart. What a strong person. That is a lot of mouths to feed. You know, oh my God. Okay. Okay. Question nine, which is greater? The percentage of 2020 fishing licenses sold to first-time anglers and people who hadn't fished in the last five years or the average gallons of beer and cider consumed by each American each year? Beer and cider. So 20% of fishing license sales were to first-time anglers or people who hadn't fished in the last five years, which I thought was great. A lot of, yeah. new, pe lot of new people. Um, that was um, through August, more than 3 million fishing licenses. Each year, uh, Americans drink an average of 26.5 gallons of beer and cider. So you are correct again. I'm helping out. I'm buying <laughs> fishing lures and drinking beer and cider. <laughs> I'm feeling good here. All right. <laughs> Question 10, which is greater the number of two liter bottles that could be filled with spit by the average person each month or the percentage of anglers who consider themselves beginners or intermediates? <laughs> After you drink those 26 gallons of beer, you can spit a lot, John. <laughs> how many, how many two liters do I have to fill? What's my time? What, what, what's my time span to fill the two liter? 
How many can you fill in a month? <laughs> how many can I fill in a month? Oh, wow. Versus uh, how many people consider themselves an intermediate or beginner angler? Yeah. Um, oh, I wish I was better at math, you know? Oh, I'm not going to be able to figure this out. I'm, <laughs> I'm, but I'm thinking, okay, let's say it's 15, that's 15 bottles. That's one every two days. Oh, man. I'm going to go with the anglers. Yeah, I'll go with the anglers. Okay. So the average person can fill 23 two-liter bottles with saliva in a month. But actually actually 80% of anglers consider themselves beginners or intermediates, which I was really surprised that it was that high. Interesting that 80%. I would like to see the psychology on that. I wonder who was asking the question. Like, if you were asking the question to an experienced fisher like you, it'd be like... Well, of course, I'm a you know, fisher and I like to fish and I'm an experienced angler. But then when you're, I don't know, what, what situation would make you want to be more humble? Oh, I'm just starting out. I'm, you know. When people see me <laughs> fish, John, they come up to me, they always say, oh, I guess you're a beginner, huh? <laughs> <laughs> just got that rod, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Question 11, which is greater? The typical gross profit percentage of fishing tackle or the percentage of people who can flare their nostrils? I'm going to say people who can flare their nostrils. Incorrect. A typical gross profit margin is 35%. 30% of people can flare their nostrils. Are you sure about that? Oh, hey, I found it on the internet, John. Oh, well, there you go. I was going by the internet too. Viral videos with their nostrils flared. I mean, when we get back to the psychology, maybe association between uh, rapid nostril flare and, and your ability to uh, maintain a a good outlook on life. So anyway, yeah. And you know, shame on me, you know, because that is the average. Yeah. About 30, 30, 35, 33%. That's my nostrils flare, but only when I see overpriced fishing gear, that's the only thing. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a friend that could just sit there and, and, you know, vibrate his nostrils. I mean, it just cracked me up. I'm like, how do you do it? And everybody's got a gift, I guess. <laughs> Question 12, which is greater, the average weekly sales that the live bait vending company says come from one of its bait vending machines or the number of licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Well, I'm going to go with the vending machine, a week's worth of vending machine receipts. So the live bait vending, they say that their machines average $350 per week for retailers. Mm. At Purdue University, the engineering students put together a proprietary licking machine, and they found that it took 364 licks to get to the center ah, of the Tootsie Pop. Dang it. Dang it. So <laughs> close. So close. But I was, I, but I thought the average would be a little more. What I couldn't find is how many people are killed by those vending machines. <laughs> <laughs> the night crawlers came flying right out of that. Hit him in the, between the eyes. All right. Last question, John, which oh, is boy. greater the record number of fish caught on a single Z-man bait made out of a last tech or the number of films made by Adam Sandler. Now, see, I know Sandler's one of the most successful, maybe not critically, but certainly in terms of box office. Um, but wow. The Z-man bait will hold up. I'm thinking about all his good movies, all of his duds, all of his ones that are yeah, worth watching, but may not be just epic. I'm going to go with Z-Man. I'm going to go, I think a Z-Man can do probably 40, 50 fish. I mean, they're pretty tough. 
So Adam Sandler has made 61 films. Dang it! No, listen, the, the Elastic Bait will stretch up to 12 times its own length without ripping. The record currently stands at 246 fish caught by a single bait. Wow, yes! <laughs> All right. Well, I undersold Sandler, but I'm, I apologize, Z-Man. Holy smokes. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Well, in the future... Lure Love segment. We'll be talking more about that Z-Man Elastic bait because it's so interesting. But so, John, you did nine out of 13. That is pretty good, I think. Well, let's see what the computer has to say. Okay, let's go to the Lure-Matic computer for a few comments. Calculating, calculating. 13 questions minus four incorrect answers equals a score of nine. Not bad for a tree-hugging crappy hippie from Kansas. But I scored a perfect 13 out of 13. After all, I have every back issue of Fishing Tackle Retailer magazine in my database. Also, while I was keeping score for the trivia quiz, I had time to do your taxes, calculate pi out to a million decimal places, read every article on Wikipedia and order a pizza for you. All right, so John, you, you got beaten by the Lurematic computer who got a perfect score, but 9 out of 13, that's a not too shabby in my book. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I did better than I thought I was going to do. So, Yeah, now you know to stay away from ballpoint pens and vending machines, so you, you're, you're safety conscious now too. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No more chewing on the pen. No more. <laughs> No more. All right. All right, Tim. All right. Well, what a great segment. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, and thanks to the Fishing Tackle Retailer Magazine for providing the data for today's quiz. And thanks to the internet for providing random statistics on every imaginable topic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And thank you to you, the listener out there, for joining us for Lure Love tonight. This is John King, the crappie hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas. And our good buddy, Tim Bede, our favorite FN essayist and member of the Great Lakes Outdoor Lure Riders Association saying, tight lines and valentines. Never enough lures to tie to the end of my line. Lure love, can't I make you see? Why buy five lures when you can buy 103? Oh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, John King, the crappie hippie, and big fat thank you to Tim B. Too. I will tell you, though, there have been times in the past year where I've been thinking about hanging this podcast up and having correspondents like Tim Beat and the crappie hippie have lifted me up when I needed it, and today is one of those days, and I really appreciate everything that they do for the show. And uh, speaking of people do for the show, we've got a couple of sponsors we need to talk about, too, so let's start with that. Well... It's just a second. We're going to start with, I'm really off my game. <laughs> Choosing colors instead of music. That is not good. Okay. Hey, everyone. I love podcasts. Who's got recommendations and sense? That was quick. Do you like comedy? What about movies? 
pop culture. Um, yeah? Do you like animals? What about science? Well, yeah. Do you dig plants? What about writing, snacks, rambling, and rants? Well, I... Filmmaking, improv, and interviews, Canadians, Australians, boating forecasts, and super views, ladies, gentlemen, credence, or comic books, script reads, bad TV, heads that should, perfectly big packages popping up, podcasts pointing people to discover other podcasts. Yes? Fantastic. Check out the Podfix Network, podfixnetwork.com, at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on the gram, plus check out Podfix Presents, wherever fine podcasts are found. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved. Hey guys, look at that adorable town. There's the classic New England church, the quaint village store, all surrounding that beautiful pond. The sparkling snow-frosted pines. Oh, look, they're ice skating and all those folks ice fishing. This is God's country. Let's go ice fishing this weekend, please, Dad. Yeah, let's try something new. We already have all of our warm stuff for skiing. Plus, the kid is actually making plans to put down her tablet for a change. It's certainly something different, and it sounds really fun. But how? Hey, I know a few guys. Have you ever thought about hitting the hard water but don't know where to start? I'm Clay, licensed fishing guide, and my partner Vinny and I can get you on and off the ice safely. All you need is warm clothes and a fishing license, and the Fish Nerds Guide Service will do the rest. Go to fishnerds.com for pricing and information. All right, so let's jump into it now with Doc Martin, and this is a really great interview that she did today, and she's a big score for the Fish Nerds because... I'll just tell you all about it. Uh, Leif Tapanella, that's who Doc Martin's interviewing today. He's a marine paleontologist in the Department of Geoscientists at the uh, Idaho State University and serves as curator of geology in the Idaho Museum of Natural History. Tapanella studies the behavior of fossilized sharks. And today, we are, well, we, Doc Martin and Doc Martin and Leif Tapanella are going to talk about a group of sharks which are known as the evolutionary dead end, which means after these sharks, nothing came next. The buzz saw shark. Buzz saw shark. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Doc is doing a great job. Thank you. Hey, nerds. It's Doc Martin here. Um, so happy to be back. And I'm bringing a very special guest. Hey there. Uh, this is Leif Tapanilla. So I'm a paleontologist. I work on all sorts of different fossils from different time periods. Uh, I especially like fossil sharks. They kind of get me all very excited. That's great. So sharks is is the right kind of fossil for the podcast that you're on today, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We're, we're into sharks. Now, I live out here and work in Idaho, in southeast Idaho. I work for Idaho State University and the Idaho Museum of Natural History. And uh, long ago, long ago, like, 270 million years ago, we used to be the west coast of North America and we're covered with an ocean. And so we have sharks in the mountains here. And uh, so that got me sort of uh, bitten, pardon the pun, uh, to working on sharks. We love puns. That's great. Um, so you mentioned you looked at the behavior. So how do you study the behavior of something that no longer exists? Well, that's a great question. So animals primarily, plants don't really behave in a strict sense. So let's just think about animals when they're, uh, especially in a marine environment, I think on land, it's really easy to think of like a T-Rex is running along and it's leaving footprints, right? And the footprints leave uh, a series of 
impressions that you can then extract information about how the animal was moving, how fast, and so forth. But in an ocean world, in a marine environment, instead of tracks that are pushed into the sediment, you can think of all the invertebrate animals that slither around in the, on the seafloor or that burrow down into the seafloor. And my specialty, as it turned out, was actually looking at animals that drill holes into rocks. Uh, shipworm is, is one that uh, drills holes into wood, into the hulls of ships, uh, and a real nuisance. Um, that's one example of an animal today that drills holes. There are a whole slew of uh, different kinds of clams that drill into, into hard rock. They drill their way in with chemicals or physically have uh, rasp-like shells, and they leave this record that actually sticks around in the fossil record for a very long time. And one of the things that I was really, really keen on are these uh, types of worms. They're polychaete worms that are really common in the ocean. And so polychaete, that's just a marine worm. That's just the fancy name for it. Yeah, it's a, a fancy name for marine worms and uh, kind of like earthworms, but a little hairier. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're really diverse in, in the marine environment. And some they're, pr- they're them, quite beautiful, aren't they? The most beautiful animals, I think. Mm-hmm. Just uh, the invertebrates. There are a lot of beautiful vertebrate animals. Yeah. Give them short shrift. But <laughs> they're pretty weird looking little animals too. And mm-hmm. some of them like to live in corals. They'll actually cohabitate with corals. And the corals will grow around them and make a little tube for them. Christmas tree worms, if, if one of your listeners wants to like Look up a Christmas tree worm. It's the most beautiful animal you will ever see. There's some blue colored. They look like little Christmas tree mm-hmm. uh, sitting outside of a coral. And they live, leave little holes, little tubes that are in the coral. After the coral animal dies, the skeleton's still there and the tube is there. And I found the oldest fossil record of those uh, showing that those kind of symbiotic interactions go back to some of the very earliest coral reefs on the planet 480 million years ago. Wow, that's awesome. And so now you also, we're going to move on to the reason that I called yeah. you, right? The, the sharks. This isn't so, What's that? This, this I know. We actually did have a worm guy on uh, last year, an earthworm um, scientist from, um, he's in Georgia, I think. And so we talked about earthworms more is a little bit different, but we usually use earthworms as bait for the purposes yes. of ours, but it turns out they have lots more important things that they do. But anyway, um, and so you started this look in, in marine systems with fossils and behaviors, and, and eventually that led you to looking at sharks in, in some way. Um, and you went, you landed on a pretty interesting group of sharks, as it turns out. Well, so as a marine paleontologist, I've always sort of had an awareness of of the, the larger animals that are swimming out there, right? And especially mm-hmm. sharks. If you go back far enough in Earth history, sharks are kind of the 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 big ticket item uh, in terms of predators in the in the world oceans. And of course, they're still around today, doing uh, doing quite well. But um, where I'm located right now in Idaho, it turns out is is the mecca for one particular fossil type of shark that uh, I had heard about when I was going to school, uh, but didn't really see one for for real until I started working at the museum where I work. And we have the world's largest collection of these spiral-shaped set of teeth that are buried in rocks. And it's an animal that's called the world tooth shark or the buzzsaw shark. Uh, The nerd name is Helicoprion. And it's a spiral of teeth 
And um, we have like 90 of these fossils in our collections. They're actually pretty rare most everywhere else. And so that got me tied into this whole breed of really weird sharks that lived 250 to 300 million years ago. This big group of fairly diverse animals that practically nothing is known about, except we have a few fossils here and there. And they are weird. So um, I actually, being, I'm an extant fish ecologist, right? So I do a lot with just behavior of fishes that are currently here, and that can be a lot of different things, Um, but definitely not sharks. I I live in Kansas, and so there's not a lot of living sharks that are here in the waters. I know that's surprising maybe to some folks. And so a lot of the times when I have, I've seen these sharks before, mostly just in books, and it's not usually any kind of really fancy drawing. It's usually a very simple line drawing and it focuses on the look of those jaws. And so um, I know our listeners can't see what you're seeing. So if you could describe that weird shape of the jaw, how would you be able to describe it? Because it it is absolutely bizarre. Well, okay. So this this family of sharks that we're going to talk about today, they come in different varieties. One, the one that I introduced already, this buzzsaw shark or the world tooth shark, it has about 125 teeth all on a spiral. So imagine in the middle of the spiral, you have a tiny tooth and then a slightly bigger tooth and a bigger tooth. And they're all on a spiral that wraps around maybe three or four times. That spiral of teeth is actually located in the animal, if you could swim with it right now, That spiral of teeth is located roughly where your tongue is, right in the middle of the lower jaw. So we think about teeth in most fish and us as wrapping around your jaw, right? You have a U shape of teeth on the top and the bottom wrapping around your jaw. Well, this family of fish that we'll talk about today has their biting teeth located in the midline of the jaw, right where your tongue is. And so it's weird. It's just weird. There's no way to get around (laughs) it. And so it makes for a very weird looking mouth. So if you're looking at it face on, what you would see is a fairly narrow face looking at you, almost bird-like actually, a wedge shape where it comes to a Hmm. point at the front. And in the lower part of the jaw, you might have a, a, a disc of teeth coming up roughly where your tongue is. And on the upper side of the mouth, just an open cavity for that uh, set of teeth to kind of cup into. Really weird. There's another type of fish that we'll talk about that has, we call it the common name is the scissor tooth shark. Mm -hmm. And so it has teeth in the upper and lower jaw. If you're looking at it from a side view, those teeth are suspended in what looks like a curved banana. So it's got a banana in the upper mouth and the banana in the lower part of its mouth, okay? And sticking out of the upturned part of the banana is a row of triangular teeth that are serrated on both ends. And so if I'm looking at this fish face on, again, it's a wedge-shaped, narrow, pointed Mm -hmm. face. I'm going to have a series of teeth on the top and a series of teeth on the bottom that curve toward each other in its mouth when it's going to bite you. Not a pretty sight. 
No, no, it's just very <laughs> unusual looking. And so I, I, what brought me to ask you about this is you discovered something super cool about these guys. Not only like we've known that they existed for a while, but um, you got to find something out that got science pretty excited. Um, well, and so, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So one of the, okay. So the hazard of working on sharks in the fossil record is sharks, as we all know, like they have teeth and they have jaws, but the rest of the animal is not made of bony materials, right? The rest of the animal is made of cartilage and cartilage over time, after the animal dies, it's on the seafloor, it rots, it decomposes, it's consumed by other organisms, right? And it disappears. And so most of the fossil record of sharks is really dominated by teeth mm -hmm. and, and lots of teeth, right? Like uh, some sharks will produce thousands and thousands and thousands of teeth throughout their life and throw them away. And they land on the seafloor and they can be preserved as fossils. Um, so we know a lot about sharks based on their teeth. But the problem is when you find teeth just in isolation, you don't know how it fits with the rest of the animal. You don't know what the, what the whole animal looks like. And certainly, uh, as I've described these two different animals, one with the scissor teeth and the other with the spiral of teeth, if you only found those as fossils, as bizarre as they look and as unlike anything alive today as they look, you wouldn't really know how to reconstruct that animal and understand how it might actually function, look, or eat. And I might give an example to our fans here about how difficult this is. So I'm going to say that I'm, I'm going to pull teeth. I'm going to pull one tooth from a person and from a cat and from a hamster. And just I'm just going to pull random teeth from 100 different animals that have teeth. I'm going to put them all in a bucket. I'm going to have one of our listeners pull one of those teeth out and tell me about the animal. Good right. Luck. Just, just look right. Good luck. Like that, you know, that's really hard. And so there's certain things you can do to understand maybe the structure of the tooth, what it's made of. And we've talked a little bit about microchemistry on the podcast before. So you can analyze that to get an idea of maybe diet or how old that organism was. Um, but that doesn't, that that's a very limited amount of information you can get from just one or maybe a few teeth. Yeah, and that's exactly the, the challenge. And the paleontologist has, you know, another series of problems to deal with, which, you know, I mentioned earlier that I like ambiguity and the, the difficultness of biology. Uh, when you're dealing with, with an ancient record of biology, you have even less information to work from because you don't have animals today that are exactly the same as the ones you're looking at the past. And so you have to, you have to really put your, you know, detective hat on and pull as much information as possible out of the little scraps of information you do have. So when we're lucky, when we're really lucky, we get good fossils that preserve a little more information. So let's talk about the, the scissor tooth shark. The scissor tooth shark has these banana shaped um, jaw. Well, it's hard to call them jaws series of teeth that are on a, uh, on a rigid bony like structure that uh, is sort of shaped like a banana. And you might have like a dozen uh, teeth on, on these, okay? So you have uh, you two bananas each with a dozen teeth. Yeah, two bananas with a dozen teeth. It makes you And hungry. the weird thing is, is that if you have the bananas, if you imagine yourself holding the bananas, 
they don't fit together, right? They're actually curving in opposite directions. They curve in opposite directions. So um, yeah, it's it, it's sort of like the way you wouldn't expect them to be. Right. Yeah. It's very unusual for something not, where teeth would be. <laughs> they don't spoon into each other, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you took the rounded outward parts of the spoons and, and clapped them together. It's It's really unusual. Okay. So we've got a few fossils in our fossil record that actually show both an upper and a lower in the same fossil. And that allowed earlier scientists to, to reckon that there was an upper and lower set of these banana-shaped teeth. Okay, we're good there. What, what we were able to find a few years ago and turned out to be really, really uh, helpful is we found a fossil that uh, actually records the whole head along with the upper and lower banana-shaped teeth. Now, the head itself is only, um, boy, a little bigger than your hand at best. It's not a big fossil. The biggest ones of these, the bananas, the largest bananas <laughs> that we find are like over a foot long with, oh, wow. with teeth or so on. them. And this one, the, the bananas, so to speak, were only uh, a couple inches long. So what we're dealing with, we would think, is a, is a juvenile example of this animal. And I got to tell you, the rock that it was found in uh, was collected back in the 60s. And um, it, it looks like a floor tile. It's, it's no more exciting <laughs> than something you might find in a bathroom floor tile. <laughs> it's about that thick, black, huh. um, pretty flat. Like if you know what you're looking for, it kind of looks lumpy. doesn't look mm-hmm. like it was sanded smooth, just kind of a lumpy blobby thing, but about the size of your hand. But it comes from uh, a set of rocks that were known. And the reason why people were collecting there is they knew that there were fossils in those rocks. And you could take one of those uh, floor tiles and put it, you know, in, a, in an x-ray machine and shoot an x-ray through it. And based on the differences in density between the fossil and the rock itself, you could actually pick out, oh, there's a fossil in there. Right. It, it's kind of like how x-rays work on people, right? It goes through your skin, but not through your bone. That's right. Uh, and, and so when you look at a, you get a black and white image back, you know, the rock itself might appear um, uh, really dark and the fossil itself might be different shades of gray or even white. And so you can start catching kind of the ghost of the fossil in the rock without me having to scrape away the rock. Um, once we start scraping away the rock, we could do that, of course, but you might start breaking into your actual fossil and that, you know, deletes it forever. We don't mm-hmm. want to do that. So we already knew that there was sort of like a head shape inside this rock. We, we went one step further and we put this thing in a CAT scanner, which again, is just like what you do uh, if, you know, you actually, I have to go to a CAT scanner pretty soon because I messed up my wrist. So they're going to look at my wrist and see that all my bones are where they belong. And, uh, you know, using using a whole series of x-rays, right? And then they can put that together. In the same way, we can do that with fossils, um, which allows us to see three-dimensionally inside the rock uh, to the best of our ability to, to kind of suss out, to pull out the details three-dimensionally of what that fossil is. So what we found... Um, hmm, is a very flattened, squished shark. So, mm. 
I, I meant little pancake shark, pancakes and bananas. This is a really good breakfast. Shark. And <laughs> I, I don't know why all my analogies are food related, but I guess that says something about me. <laughs> um, so we've got this sort of fist sized skull that is uh, flattened like, like a pancake, like as thick as a pancake. Uh, and so, so you can imagine what, you know, you've seen roadkill. Uh, imagine trying to reconstruct a poor squirrel that's been flattened, right? And now our job now is to reinflate it, like get the bike tire, pump it up, choop, 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 and inflate this skull. And imagine how the busted bits of its skull fit back together so we can reconstruct what we think is a close approximation of what that animal looked like. It's, uh, it's a tricky a tricky job. But because we had the x-ray and the CT scans, we have computer files now, right? So we can cut and paste and move around these objects digitally. And that actually helps quite a lot. So what we were able to do is reconstruct this, this skull. And one of the things that we found was, was kind of astonishing. This is a, a weird layout of a skull that we have not really seen anywhere that we know of in, in the fishy record. Okay, so as I described before, the, the scissor tooth shark here has uh, a banana in the top, banana in the bottom with, with uh, little teeth coming at each other. Okay, uh, but the, the banana in the lower jaw is attached on the left and right with a uh, you know, lower jaw. And that actually connects to another piece of bone before it connects to the top of the skull. So it actually has a double jointed lower jaw. Which yes, is, and I actually had cool. noted that. So what does that mean? Because that is something that's super unusual. And so what, what does it mean to have a double-jointed lower jaw? So a double-jointed lower jaw means you have an extra motion that you're allowed to do with your jaw. Now, if you think of kind of in the most basic sense how our jaw works, it's a little more complicated than this, but basically we kind of operate like scissors. We, we open and close kind of like a V, right? So we can open our mouth, ah, and then we close our mouth, ah, and it, we have one pivot point, right? Where we open, close, open, close, open, close. Now, if you did that with a banana on the top of your mouth and a banana on the bottom of your mouth with little points sticking up, you'd be very good at piercing things. You could, you could jab the teeth from the upper and jab the teeth from the lower into your meat. But that's about all you could do. So what's cool about having the extra joint is not only do the, the upper and jaw get closed toward each other, but we believe that this animal, as it closes its mouth, can take its lower jaw and pull back towards its throat. So we have two motions that are happening in this jaw, which make a lot of sense with the two bananas that it has in its mouth full mm -hmm. of teeth. So as the mouth closes, you have those, uh, you have sort of the steel trap of teeth coming down from above and coming up from below, but then the lower ones are gonna slide back towards the throat. And so you have a slicing motion. Now the shape of those teeth on both top and bottom are like little triangles that are double serrated, on, serrated on the front end and serrated on the back end. So that when they come toward each other and stop just short, then they can pull back and you have a meat slicing machine. That's the idea. And so this is telling you something 
about probably maybe how this shark might have eaten prey or what it was after? Well, so there's a little bit of speculation. The the, uh, the scissor tooth shark is found in the United States. We find it primarily in in places like Illinois and Indiana, a little into Kentucky. This is uh, and and it's almost always associated with coal, which is really kind of neat. So the first people that actually started finding these beautiful banana shaped with tooth fossils were were coal miners. And so you can imagine a coal mine, uh, the coal seam itself that they're actually mining out might be six feet high or, or 10 feet high, a little taller than you or me, right? And they dig out this coal seam, but then the roof rocks, the, the rocks that are immediately above the coal itself are usually the black shale tile rocks that we found our edestus, our, our scissor tooth shark in. So after they're done mining, often the roof collapses behind them after, you know, years after, as it dries out, whatever, the roof rocks start falling down. And it's in those roof rocks that they tend to find these shark fossils of the, of the, saw, or the, of the scissor tooth shark, thank you. And um, that is a kind of an interesting little cue to geologists of what kind of environment those animals were living in. The coal itself actually represents these marshy environments where lots of plants and vegetation are growing quite happily. And, and that's what makes coal. But immediately above that, in these, these sort of black colored mud rocks, are probably uh, bayous. These are estuary rocks, kind of like what you might find in the bayous of Louisiana, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is the sea, this, this is the seafloor or the, the bayou floor sediment that our sharks, the Sisutu sharks, were swimming above and then dying in, in these really organic, rich, probably stinky muds and preserved beautifully. What we also find in there are a variety of other fish. And sometimes we find chopped up fish, like the tails Ah. of cut up fish that look exactly like they were chopped by scissor tooth sharks. It's really cool. That is really cool. Quite gory. Yeah, yeah, that would be a, a messy way to eat, I would think. I would think very messy. And you can imagine uh, it's, it's one thing to chop up your food, right? You can cut down, slice uh, your, your animals, uh, your prey animals in half, and that subdues them. But then you got to go back in and somehow gingerly suck them up and, and eat them. We're not quite sure how that second part happens, but presumably it did. For, for at least a little while. <laughs> Those animals lived around for, for several million years. So they're a very successful group. We have at least three different species of them. The largest get up to about 20 feet in length. So these are, you know, beefy predators. Yeah, with horrifying jaws. With horrifying jaws. I think cute jaws, really. So, so cute. You have some 3D printouts of them. We have 3D printouts of these guys. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we, we need to start a grassroots effort to uh, make them a poster child. So I guess one of the questions was that I had is you're, you're modeling um, with some computer stuff, yeah. moving p- bits and pieces around. That's how you found that the jaw had those two hinges. And so it could move in two different ways, which is super exciting. Um, and a little bit about where they live. But did the 3D printing, was was that for this study? I was just curious because I saw you you had the picture with you holding those the yeah. banana jaws up there. Well, so we got 
we we've been uh, as we've been figuring out new ways, sort of to direct sort of modern technology to really old fossils, fossils that were collected, you know, last century or the century before. Um, at the same time, you know, as as our tools of extracting the fossils from the rock digitally has increased. 3D printing has become, you know, easier and easier for us to do. And, and our lab specializes in 3D printing as well as the digital side. And so uh, what it allows you to do is start making models. So we can go back to making analog models that are based off of um, the, the digital reconstructions that we actually make. And so we do have a model of the scissor tooth shark with the art double articulated jaw, that double jointed jaw. So we can show how that thing actually operates. Yeah. So the modeling part of it and making physical plastic uh, uh, printouts is a big part of uh, how we kind of problem solve and then later on educate the public about these animals. All right. Very cool. And so um, I, I noticed that there are so we've talked a lot about other sharks that have world jaws. Yeah. in some way. Um, but there's only a few species of the scissor jaw shark. That's right. That's right. So do the other, are there any other similarities between just the general world tooth sharks, like with the spiralized jaw that would suggest they may do some kind of similar two motion um, eating or is this right. pretty unique? Do you think where, how, how pervasive do you think this is? Should you find more fossils in the future of these moderately related species, I guess? Right. So we really think we have two end members right now that we have a pretty good handle on, uh, based on the, these sort of jaw fossils that we've been finding along with teeth. So the scissor tooth, I think we've got a handle on, on how that animal operated. And then the, the buzzsaw shark, the whirl tooth or spiral tooth shark, uh, it has a chopping motion also that has sort of a saw-like rotational component to its bite. And so it's, it's like, it, it slices and dices its food in half too, um, but in a slightly different way than, than our scissor tooth guy does. There now, so those are two animals that we understand actually reasonably well because we have teeth that are associated with jaw fossils. And that's really kind of the kicker is, is once you have those two things, then you can do a lot to say a, um, how those animals might have uh, processed food, hunted and behaved and that sort of thing. The problem right now is we need more fossils. So we have lots and lots of different kinds of sharks that have different names that are part of this family that have teeth in the midline part of their jaw that are used for chomping fish except all we have so far are just the teeth. And so we're missing the jaws. And it's my suspicion that as, you know, as people keep finding more fossils, as happens over time, we're going to find some jaw material inevitably, and we'll be able to, um, you know, we now have ways of imaging those. I suspect that, that these fish are going to kind of fit into one camp or the other, either the scissor style jaw that has the double joint or the single uh, biters that have a highly, highly curved, almost spiral shape or circular shape series of teeth that make use of a rotational component to do the slicing. Um, both of those techniques of, of biting and processing foods are 
unique, if not, um, you know, truly special among vertebrate animals, let alone fish. It's just, it's, it's bizarre that these evolved in the first place. Um, and, and, and really a special history in, in the history of sharks. One of the neat things about this group, this family of, uh, of sharks with these midline teeth is they really were where all of the innovation, all of the diversity, all of the interesting stuff in sharks was happening in that group back when they were alive. So long ago, we have these different eras of time that geologists and paleontologists use to describe big pieces of time. So we're in the Cenozoic era, dinosaurs were in the Mesozoic era, and the animals I'm talking about were towards the end of the Paleozoic era. And if you were alive, if humans were alive during the Paleozoic era, and I said the word shark, these are the animals you would be thinking of. This is where all of the height of diversity was happening and innovation. And when the Paleozoic ended with one of life's greatest mass extinctions ever, the group of sharks that I'm talking about, uh, almost all of them disappeared. Some of them trickle into the dinosaur era, the Mesozoic, but most of them kind of fade out. And we only have a few um, hold-ons, uh, holdover taxa, uh, including ratfish today. So ratfish mm -hmm. are part of this group uh, and chimera. These are kind of the background uh, sharky characters that we have in the ocean today but they have a long, long, long history that most closely al aligns with these weird buzzsaw and, and scissor tooth sharks of the past. And the chimera are still very weird looking for today in today's standards. Aren't they just bizarre? They're, <laughs> yeah, you they're gotta really love cool. them. You gotta love <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, you, you brought this up that they're, they're special and unique. And so um, you, you talked a little bit about maybe some evolutionary implications here. So a lot of them just got wiped out, maybe related to the ratfishes. Um, is there any indication of why this jaw style had ever evolved? Do you have any, any thoughts on that? This is, a, this is an area that we're interested in, in to con continue exploring. Um, again, the fossil record shows us some hints of earlier animals to this group uh, that have um, crushing jaws uh, or crushing teeth. Instead of being long pointy meat cutters, these look like uh, sharks that were probably crushing shells. Um, and they look, they appear to be the, the group that gives rise to the scissor tooth and, and uh, saw, saw tooth sharks. And so um, it's possible that, you know, one branch of those crushing uh, sharks decided to make the choice to go uh, go for uh, swimming fish instead of, uh, or actually, we think a lot of uh, our, our sawtooth and buzzsaw sharks were possibly eating the squid that were evolving and, and being really prolific, the squid relatives, uh, during that time period. And maybe they were specialists for that kind of food source. So and maybe food source soft body. So. And soft body is a big part of it. One of the cool things that we've noticed in both of the sharks that I've talked about today is um, we get lots of their teeth preserved, but it's very, very rare to find a busted tooth, a tooth that was busted during the life of the animal. And even wear patterns uh, that would suggest that they're eating something really hard or abrasive. 
you don't see a lot of evidence for that. A little bit, but not a lot, not as much as you'd think. And so uh, it, it leads us to believe that they were eating meat, but without hitting bone or hard structures. And, and that would fit very nicely with uh, them eating calamari. <laughs> calamari is delicious, so I don't oh blame them for going after that. Maybe they, they could have put salt and pepper on it. It's hard to tell. <laughs> and so um, that's really interesting that you don't find any we- much wear or broken teeth during the life of the animal. And so is it possible um, or do you know how frequently those teeth might have been lost? It would it be reasonable to think that that rate is similar to the sharks that we see today or maybe it was faster so there wasn't time for those teeth to wear down? So different answer to the different animals that I was talking about. So the scissor tooth sharks do, um, uh, they, they get rid of their teeth out the front of their mouth. So along that, okay, banana analogy is going to turn into a taco analogy. Are you ready? I'm okay. ready. So, so if you buy tacos at the grocery store, the hard shell tacos, when you buy them, they are stacked V-shaped one on top of the next, on top of the next, right? Imagine if you, if you staggered that row of V-shaped tacos out, that is what the roots of the teeth of the scissor tooth shark actually look like. And so they have a little pointed tooth on the end of a long taco shell V-shaped root. Those get ejected out the front of the mouth every so often. Okay, so I've made a banana, pancake, and taco reference. It's almost lunchtime. Okay, <laughs> so they are ejecting those teeth. And based on the size, we, we've been able to sort of forecast or predict how many teeth they generated throughout their life. It's actually not all that many, maybe um, 40 teeth in their life, maybe 50, but not hundreds. Um, so they're not shedding them that fast, honestly. Now in the, in the spiral tooth shark, the really weird old thing about them is they keep every single tooth in their entire life. And so the baby teeth are actually, you can find them today in the middle of that spiral, the little tooth that the animal had when it was a youngster. And then it's adult most tooth, the, the tooth it made before it died is the outermost largest tooth on that thing. So we have every tooth the animal ever made in one fossil, which is really cool. And we can look at the entire lifetime of that animal and That's see really cool. very little breakage. <laughs> like they were very careful with their teeth. Huh. Now yeah. that's very interesting. The now do other sharks keep teeth? Because you know, I think a lot of people think that all sharks get rid of teeth, right? That's that's right. And and probably ninety nine point nine percent of sharks get rid of those teeth, right? Which seems awfully wasteful. But if you go back far enough in history, and if, if we're back into that Paleozoic era, a long time ago, there are some early sharks that actually retain their teeth instead of uh, as those teeth erupt sort of towards the middle of the mouth and then they rotate upward to a biting position and then out outside the mouth where they get snarled and ripped out into your leg or something. Uh, some sharks actually plated the outside of their jaw on the outside of their mouth with, with teeth. Um, and that appears to be an early condition that actually uh, predates shedding of teeth. So it's very rare, but it does occur. In the buzzsaw shark, that's that's the choice they made is uh, we're, we're never going to shed our teeth. So in order to deal with the space problem of keeping your teeth forever, going to put it on a spiral. <laughs> well, not, my, um, not the best choice, perhaps, but interesting problems require interesting solutions. <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
Now, they lasted 8 million years in Earth history, and the buzzsaw shark, for its time, was the largest animal on the planet, getting up to 35 feet in length. Maybe wow. More and uh, number one predator in the world, they were the big, biggest big critter anywhere up until that time period, 270 million years ago. So weird choices, but they were effective. Very effective. Until they weren't. Until they weren't. (laughs) And they give give rise to nothing after. So they are a dead end. Interesting. Yeah. Sad. Well, yeah. (laughs) It's how it goes, I guess, isn't it? I guess so. So there's well, all these you. others. Yeah. There are all these other sharks that that we're really excited to to learn more about that are in the same vein. Maybe they don't make a full spiral of teeth or a full banana shape. Maybe they have two sets of bananas and one on the bana- on the bottom the banaban, <laughs> one on the bottom. <laughs> Hard to say that. Um, bottom there's banana. all sorts of variations here, and and we're just waiting for more fossils to be found and and they will be over time we have to be patient and and do more field work to track them down and so is that where you're at now so this paper or the what i've seen it came out a year or two ago i think um and so is that the your personal research trajectory is to kind of stick with this and and add more information and discover related species is that what you're working on now yeah, that's right. Uh, there's there's sort of two directions to go with this. Uh, getting to know our other cousins, our other weird cousins, and figuring them out, applying some of the same techniques that we've done here in in uh, in these recent studies, applying that to more of those other weird cousins that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, so that will require, in most cases, going to other museums and looking at their collections and doing some analysis, right? But then the other question that is really interesting to me is how do you how do you get there? Right? What's the origin of, of these animals and what does the um, what do the conditions look like that lead to the anatomies, these unique anatomies that we see in this family of sharks? And um, and what might be going on environmentally that could uh, help promote this, this kind of shift into this uh, in this way of life. So those are the kinds of questions that we're addressing now. And a lot of that, again, requires field work. It requires uh, visiting museums and collections and uh, really breathing new life into old fossils. Awesome. Um, so I guess I just have one more question for you. And that is, is there anything else that like cool facts or anything else that you think our fans should know about these kinds of sharks? Oh no! Well, we talked about how um, the was it the buzz jaw buzz jaw the buzz saw buzz buzz saw shark. Well, that was the one of the bigger ones of its time, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah. and then we talked about the keeping some of them keep the teeth, some of them lose the teeth. We talked a lot about a lot of cool stuff. You know what? I want to give a shout out to. I want to give yeah. a shout out to uh, Ray Troll. And many of your listeners are going to know Ray Troll. Oh, yeah. Right? Our fish <laughs> artist extraordinaire. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we were able to do what we did in, in both of these, uh, with both of these fish, is through his help. So as it turns out, Ray, who not only is an excellent artist, he is also a, a massive fish nerd. And uh, 
he has been obsessed, especially with the buzzsaw shark for a very, very long time. And when we, uh, my former student, who's now an employee of mine, who's a co-author on all the work, when he found some of these fossils in our collection and got my interest involved in it, uh, Ray Troll soon joined the team and he helped connect us to some modern biologists like Cheryl Wilga and Alan Pradell uh, and Jason Ramsey. And it helped us pull together a science team that included an artist uh, to help kind of understand how these animals function. And I got to tell you, having an artist on a science team, this is the first time I've done that, right? Have a, sci a, a science group for a bunch of eggheads, by the way, uh, <laughs> with, with another egghead, but that has, um, that has an artist's mind. Mm -hmm. And the thing that is really cool working with an artist, especially like Ray, is they're full of questions that you wouldn't maybe ask as a scientific mind. He has to, of course, his challenge is he has to draw the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're drawing the thing from any vantage point, you have to have answers about, well, what? It, how does the mouth connect at the bottom? How does the spiral of teeth connect in the mouth? Does it, does it have a long snout or a short snout? Uh, how many gill slits should it have? And, you know, he's asking sometimes questions we don't have good answers to because we don't have the rest of the fossil animal. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to make educated guesses. But one of the things that's really cool working with him is it the artist is pushing the science, the, the scientist to come up with answers, right? Because they have to imagine. You have to know, yeah. <laughs> and, and the scientist is then pushing the artist to come up with a solution that could work. Or based on all the fish you've seen and drawn, how would you imagine this could work? And then that... So from a science, if I can nerd out on science for a second, what that is, is it's creating hypotheses and it's requiring tests of hypotheses to come up with a new hypothesis or rejection. And so that is the scientific method. And I've never seen it personally work with an artist before. And working with Ray was just a total delight because here you've got this brilliant mind with a ton of experience, but coming at it from a very different direction than I do as a fossil guy, or even my modern biologist researchers would. And so that was just, it was an eye opener to me. That sounds really awesome. I'm a huge fan of Rachel's artwork and I have several of his books in my office. So that's Excellent. pretty exciting. Yes. <laughs> a little envy over on this end of the, of the <laughs> virtual computer here. <laughs> yeah, he's um, good. That's great. Well, um, if our fans wanted to look up your work or um, follow any updates, do you have any like social media um, websites or anything you want to share with us? Well, <laughs> I don't know that I really do. You know, if they Google, if they Google buzzsaw shark or scissor tooth shark, they're going to find a ton of stuff. And they're going to, they're going to find Rachel's art all, right away because he does all the artwork for us. So um, that's the best way to, get, to, to tie in. Awesome. Perfect. Well, um, Leif, thank you so much for being our guest here on the Fish Nerds podcast. This has been an absolute delight. What an, what an unusual group of fishes. Uh, that has to be really exciting to go to work every day and, and, and work on them. They're fun, <laughs> fun beasts to work on. And we're, we're just trying to get the message out. These are great animals to, to know about. You know, everybody knows their T-Rexes and they know sort of the classic characters of, of fossils. 
but they're you know they're they're a giant fish uh, like megalodon like dunkleosteus there's the giants that that are in our history that i you know when kids see this animal it blows their mind right when adults see this animal it blows their mind so we're trying to get that word out awesome well thank you again so much and um if you ever want to talk more about fish fossils you you have my email let me know this was great right on erica thank you thanks Thanks, Doc. And thank you, um, other Doc, new Doc, Doc Tapanella. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast. It was a great interview. Uh, so that's it. That's the whole show. Uh, big thank you to our Patreon supporters. We'll talk about you more next week in the show, once my brain is back to normal and I've had less tequila. Just kidding. I'm drinking vodka. Uh, so, <laughs> so let's get this show ended for you so you can get on with your week back to normal next week. My apologies uh, for the weirdness this week. But uh, so that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big fat thank you to Tim Beat and the Crappy Hippie for their Lure Love segment. Th- big thank you to Grace Beat for singing the song for Lure Love. Also, thank you to um, Wally Pleasant for our opening theme and closing theme for this podcast. Have to make sure I thank Doc Martin. Doc, I love you. Thank you so much for bringing us Leaf Tapanilla. Thank you, Leaf, for coming on the show. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. And I pushed the wrong button, so I'm going to go back. And push the right button. That's it, guys. Thank you so much. Normal season. In a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean, casting nets. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the halibut. Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast.